And thank you that it's in the midst of our praise and our gratitude, no matter what we're going through, even before situations have resolved themselves as we wish, that it's the praise and the gratitude that paves the way for your joy to fill our hearts and our minds. It's just like, like the praise is like a river that flows through our souls, just carving a path so that joy may overflow out of us. And so, Lord, we welcome you. We welcome you to come. And in the midst of whatever dry situations we may be in or desperation or wherever we may feel powerless, we invite you to come and just fill us with your joy, even in that, that your joy may be our strength in all things. In your holy name we pray, and everybody said, amen. 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 You may have a seat. You may have a seat. But man, it is good to be with you guys today. I mean, isn't that true, though? Like, do, do you even, do you even get, feel that? Right? Sometimes, even if we're not feeling it when we wake up, there's something about actually expressing our gratitude and our praise to God that, that just paves the way and makes room in our hearts for joy to bubble up. Do you feel that? I don't think it's just a music thing. Like it's actually a spiritual reality. It's the work of God in our hearts that as we focus on Him, this is one of the reasons why we make room when we gather together to sing. It's because that's part of us exercising faith as we sing that moves our hearts to exp- for His joy. All right, if you don't believe me right now, hopefully by the end of this message you'll believe me. Um, but uh, I'm sure that many of us are in the throes of the Christmas season. So out of curiosity, how many of you, you have finished or nearly finished all your Christmas shopping in here? All right, well done. Pat yourselves on the back. Um, how many of you, out of also curiosity, have barely started or have just begun? All right, hey, plenty of time, no stress, no shame, plenty of time. And sometimes it's like, I find that last-minute ideas can sometimes be the most creative, right? Sometimes. Even if it means you're re-gifting something, re-gifting is just spreading the love, right? You got it, now you get, somebody else gets to get the love you got. No shame in that, but... I, was it just me or did it feel like people started prepping for Christmas earlier than ever this year? Maybe, I know that a lot of retail stores drive that kind of thing, but I don't know. Like, I, it just seems to me that the lights, the decorations started coming out well before Thanksgiving <laughs> this year. And I, one side of me just feels like it's a violation of Christmas law, right, to, to, to bring out that stuff before Thanksgiving. But there was also another side of me that, that appreciated it. Because as a pastoral team, we've been thinking about Advent even since this last summer, trying to say, okay, what is it, God, that you have for us as a church? And so I was pulling out the Christmas story around August, because if, if you don't notice, we talk about the same story every single year, right? And we talk about it four weeks in a row. And so as a pastor, you're like, what other angle can I take on this story, God? How are we supposed to cover this? And so we were re- I was reading it back through again in August, just saying, all right, what is this? And, and this year it struck me that while we, we pr- may prepare months in advance for the celebration of Christmas, that for those in the first Christmas story, try as they might, like the arrival of Jesus came as somewhat of an interruption, if not a disruption, into their lives. It was not exactly something they were looking for, or if they were looking for, certainly not in the way that it came into their lives. 
And so we saw last week, for example, the priest Zechariah. He had just gotten used to this reality that he and his wife were not going to have a baby. He would not have an heir until he was in the temple and Gabriel shows up with a thrill of hope that his wife Elizabeth was going to be born, was going to have a baby boy. But Zechariah, like, he couldn't believe it. His whole life, like this changed everything that he thought was going to be true about his life. And then what about Mary and Joseph? Do we even have to explain how like, Jesus messed up their whole five, ten year trajectory? <laughs> or King Herod, king of Judea. like He had no room for Jesus in his kingdom. And so as I begin to think about all of that, all that got me thinking. You know, God is breaking into our lives all the time. He is speaking. He is active. He is working. Even in the undesirable circumstances, God can still use these things to bring about his ends and his growth. But am I aware of it? And when God does break into our lives and he's getting our attention, like do I welcome that interruption or do I treat it as a disruption and just continue to go about my Christmas season checklist somewhat aloof at his nudging? Are we aware of how he's breaking into our lives? And what ultimately can we give him in this Christmas season that would make room for him to come and interrupt our plans? And when I say give him, I don't necessarily give him like a present, but what can we give up to him? So for example, last week with Zechariah, Pastor David unpacked how for Zechariah, he had to give up his disbelief and his cynicism even, in order to make room for a renewed trust in Christ. And so as we prepare to celebrate this long-awaited arrival of Christ every year, how do we prepare ourselves prayerfully asking, is Jesus welcome to interrupt my life too? And am I even listening? Am I paying attention? Why or why not? And today, as we continue to to think through that, we're going to take a closer look at the story of Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is not the big name in the Christmas story. She's definitely never one times person of the year. She was more like the opening band before the headliner came up. And so for that reason, it's easy to just jump over her story just to get to the birth of Jesus when we're thinking about Christmas. But as I've spent time in her story this week, I realized that the elderly mother of John has a lot to teach us about making room for Jesus always and in a season like now. And if you've ever ached for a long time for God to intervene in some area of life, then you know something of what Elizabeth experienced waiting for a child well into her advanced years. How could she possibly wait for so long, even holding on to so much disappointment? And what was God doing in her amidst all of that waiting? How was he preparing her to receive him? And how might he be working within us, even if you are in an in a waiting season yourself. So let's start by looking at Elizabeth's story in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. 
And then we're going to jump up to verses 23 and 25. Um, if you want to turn in the blue Bible in front of you, we're on page 830. If you don't have a Bible at home, Merry Christmas. That blue Bible in front of you is our gift to you. Um, but we're in Luke chapter 1, verse, verse 5 to verse 7 is where we'll start. Um, open your Bible app and your phone too, that's perfectly fine. But as we read this, I want you to try to imagine what she felt, what she was experiencing. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now right after that, Zechariah goes to the temple while burning incense in the temple. Gabriel shows up. Surprise, you're going to have a baby. Elizabeth is going to have a baby. Um, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Zechariah doesn't really believe it. Um, for that, he is disciplined. He is silenced for a bit. And now he's coming home. All right, so we're going to pick up the story there. Verse 23. When his time of service was completed, Zechariah returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In the days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Lord, I pray that you allow um, each of us to see and hear what it is that you want us to see and hear as we look at your word. May your spirit open our hearts and speak individually to every single person in here. We welcome you to get our attention and then lead us to live in light of what you show us. In your name we pray, amen. So Elizabeth, Elizabeth, now to be clear, in first century Jewish society, Elizabeth was somebody. She had status. She was the wife of a priest. She was a descendant of the priestly line of Aaron. And regarding the law, she lived blamelessly. Now, all of those things meant that in her society, she was a woman worthy of respect. And certainly worthy of God's blessing. But that made it all the more confusing when she did not conceive a child. When she could not have a baby. Like, what's going on? Because ultimately, to not have a baby wasn't just a heartbreaking disappointment. But for a woman in that time, it was a sign of dishonor. There was even shame attached to it. She had done everything right in life. So that left her with this haunting question, why God? How could you explain this? But as we look at her story, here's the first thing we learn from her example. That it takes some resilient faith. Some real strong faith to be faithful even when we're powerless to change things. To be faithful to God even when we're powerless to change things. Man, that's a picture of faith. Well before Zechariah and Elizabeth were married, their lives would have been pretty mapped out. In that culture, uh, when you got married to someone, the number one value wasn't are you attracted to that person? The number one value wasn't, um, does that person give me uh, the, the goosebumps, right? Or personal happiness, right? The number one value typically in marriage was, was honor and generational legacy. 
And so more than likely, Zachariah and Elizabeth, their marriage would have been uh, pre-planned by their parents. Because it's by them marrying one another that they could maintain the legacy of the, the priestly line and maintain its purity. And so I'm sure they loved each other, or at least they grew to love one another. But in that society, that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was the legacy. So from the start of their marriage, it was you can imagine relatives and friends like just we come up to Elizabeth and elbow her as they're saying, I can't wait to meet those future little priests running right around, right? The little Zackies are going to be here before you know it. And in that first year of marriage, she would have been met with so many excited faces. Ooh, just a matter of time, right? Matter of time. But of course, time went. Month after month went. And then eventually, well-meaning friends would probably say, well, perhaps you should just pray more. And Elizabeth prayed and prayed and prayed again, and nothing changed. And then she would have noticed peers of hers starting to show a bump. And then they would have a baby, and that baby would begin to grow up. But Elizabeth, nothing. And eventually those same friends and relatives who once looked on her with excitement begin to not know how to look at her. Maybe looks of pity or judgment. Because the lingering question for them is like, well, what's going on? Why hasn't God blessed her? Like this, what a disappointment. And to add to that, the Torah even says that barrenness could be the result of a curse from God. His punishment for sin. At least that's the way the Jewish people interpreted that verse. So for her, it wasn't, again, a disappointment, but there was even some shame attached to it. So how many nights must have Elizabeth cried herself to sleep with her mind racing, wondering, what is wrong with me? Is God angry? Why this disgrace? And have you ever ached for something so strongly but felt powerless to make it happen? And it's bewildering when we do our best to honor God. But life doesn't go as planned. And if you see that in this story, Elizabeth is also meant to be a picture of her own people, Israel. Israel, the the, the chosen people of God, yet here they were, had been conquered by Rome, burdened under heavy taxation, and powerless to change it. They had this maniacal King Herod who, through, through tyranny, would rule and cared more about power and prestige than he did about God's law. All of them left with a sense of hopelessness, wondering, like, why God? What are you doing? And maybe you even know what that feeling of powerlessness is personally. Perhaps you've gone through your own bouts of addiction, or maybe you have a family member who's struggling with it, and despite all the ways you've tried to help and the money you've spent and the ways you've prayed, you still don't see change happening. Or maybe you fought to keep your marriage together, your family together, but it just didn't work. Perhaps your kid was diagnosed with a mental or physical disabilities and and something that you wish so badly you could change, but you can't. Some of you are trying to climb out of debt, but then you were laid off of work. Or maybe you battled depression for years and you've wondered, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? Why me? 
And then maybe on top of all of that, you know what it feels like to have people well-intentioned say offhanded comments that are just hurtful. Or it's like they don't know how to look at you right in the middle of it. If you've been through any of that, I think you know something of what Elizabeth knew and what she experienced. And when we feel powerless, we feel like we're at the very end of ourselves. And we start to wonder, why God? And in that pain, it's tempting to let shame turn us inward or to want to point the finger out at God. Because even though Elizabeth, blameless according to the law, she was still human. And so I'm sure she struggled with many of the same things that we do. And I wonder how many times she was tempted to believe those lies of shame. And even assume that God must be the same, that God looked on her with judgment, or that he had forsaken her. Because sometimes, in a desperate attempt to make sense of our pain, we can just put that blame on ourselves, even though we have no clear reason to. Or I wonder sometimes if she, like me, had felt even bitterness toward God. Like, God, why, why would you let this happen? This is so unfair. And in our disappointment, sometimes we just need to be angry at somebody. And, and God is the first person, sometimes the easiest person. And I know that when I'm hurting in a complex situation, sometimes I just want quick answers. I just want easy answers. And so it's far easier to just blame myself or blame God. But what we saw in Elizabeth's story is that amidst the swirl of emotions and questions... Daily faithfulness keeps us open to God. Daily faithfulness is not a denial that the problems exist. Daily faithfulness is just still choosing to say, I'm still going to follow God. I'm still going to talk to God, even if I still don't understand, even in the midst of this pain. And despite the years of disappointment, the story says Elizabeth was still faithful to what God said. And when I look at that, man, I... That blows me away because that, that is such a picture of genuine faith. That when we don't just follow God when it serves us, but even when he doesn't seem to make life work out the way we want, even then when we follow God, man, what a picture of trust. What a picture of genuine faith. That even when God's will or his timing didn't match hers, she chose to trust. And that... Like, it, that's a picture of what Jesus did, is it not? Of who Jesus was. Because it was Jesus who, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before going to the cross, he prayed and he says, God, not my will, but yours be done, even though he knew what that meant. And it's Jesus who teaches us to pray in all seasons, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And even if it's not mine, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's a gutsy prayer when you don't really like the way God's will is working out. Can we agree with that? But it's a prayer of trust even when we don't understand. But I find that in those painful seasons of waiting, what was God doing in Elizabeth? How was he working? And how might he be working in us even in that? As we, if we make that choice to say, God, I'm going to continue praying I'm going to continue leaning in, even though I am disappointed. And even though I'm feeling all the things right now, God, I'm going to continue leaning in. What does, often, what does God often do in that? That it's out of his grace 
God empties us of pride and self-reliance. After all those years of disappointment, only God could take away her disgrace. And she knew that. Biologically, it was impossible. Right? I don't think I have to explain that to anybody, how that works. But it was impossible for her to conceive. But God's glory shines brightest against the backdrop of our impossibility. And have you ever been in the place where you have no options left but to trust God? I've shared this with you guys before, but the year before Shelby and I came to Trinity, uh, we lived in Scotland, and our firstborn was just a baby. It was somewhat of a risk that we took going over there, studying for a year, um, and, and we planned the best we could. But I was there on a student visa, so legally I couldn't work, meaning whatever income we came with, that's what we were stuck with. And so despite all of our pence pinching, uh, we were running out of money pretty quickly. And man, like that was starting to freak me out big time. Because early on in our marriage, there's one thing I took pride in is that I'm the provider. Right? I, I'm the provider. And so anytime we started struggling financially, they, that started making me feel like a failure. And it started making me freak out a bit. And that became a tension not only in me, but in our relationship. But looking back now, I can see how when we were in that place where all we had left was to trust God to provide, it was in that season that he was emptying me of self-trust, of, of my own pride and my own reliance and setting it up to see that he was my provider and that I could trust him. And of course, in the last minute, he provided just what we needed. But as I look back, I see the greater gift he gave us in that season was teaching us that we could trust him as he emptied us of self-reliance. And you see something of that in Elizabeth. That when finally, when, when after all her waiting, when God answers her prayer, Elizabeth exclaims, she's like, only the Lord could have done this for me. I, get, like, I got no credit here because biologically this was impossible. And I love the way the ESV translation puts her response. That she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. For years people had looked on her with pity or judgment. But she realized the whole time that God never took his eyes off of her. That God was always with her. That God had not wasted any of the pain or any of the tears, but somehow he was still at work in the midst of all of it. That in somehow God, through it, was preparing her. And that was not an act of disgrace, but an act of grace that he was doing just that in her. And that she, even after her disgrace, she realizes that God saw her the whole time. And he sees you too. He has never taken his eyes off of you. His eyes have never left you, for they are the eyes of love and faithfulness. He has always been faithful well before we were. And he never wastes pain. But oftentimes in these seasons, again, I can't speak for everybody because I don't pretend to know all that God, why God does what he does. But one thing I can say is that so often he uses these seasons to prepare us. Because it is impossible to follow Jesus fully unless we allow God to empty us of self-reliance. 
Because it was that very path of, of emptying of a self-reliance. That's the path that Jesus himself took. And that's the path he leads us in. For Jesus, Philippians 2, being in the very nature God, did not consider his divine nature as something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. ESV translation says he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That means born as a baby, laid in a manger, Christmas, right? But Christ in the manger was also Christ of the cross. For out of love for us, he humbled himself even to death that he gave his life as a sacrifice for all sin so that by faith in his gift of grace we may be forgiven and we may receive his resurrected life which is forever and so you see when it was impossible for us to make ourselves right with God to remove our own guilt just by our own good deeds, to gain eternal life on our own, to put it in the words of Elizabeth, God looked upon us with favor and he sent his son to take away our disgrace. Isn't that beautiful? But it is in following Jesus, the only way we begin is by recognizing and admitting that we cannot save ourselves. It is impossible but then recognizing that he has done everything necessary if we would humbly receive his gift of grace. That after he empties us of our self-reliance and our abilities to try to redeem and save ourselves, then we are free to receive the gift of life and love that only he can give as we stand on the bedrock of what he has done for us. Do you see that? But when God empties us, oh, he's not done, folks. Because it's always to fill us with something else. Because like God, as a master gardener, anytime he's uprooting something in our lives, it's because he's making space to plant something better in its place. And how did he fill Elizabeth next? Not just with a baby. But how did he fill Elizabeth? That when God empties us of pride, it's so that he can then fill us with the strength of his joy. That's a kick moment right there. I know maybe you haven't felt that yet, but I'll get to it. See, I wanted to check out what happens in Elizabeth's story next. Because after she was pregnant for about six months, her niece named Mary, maybe you've heard of her, her niece named Mary finds out that she's also pregnant from an angel. <laughs> Pretty wild. And she hurries off to Elizabeth's house to share the news. But you can imagine this, this could potentially set up an awkward situation. Because Elizabeth was the devout wife of a priest. If anyone was entitled to a baby, she was. Yet she had to endure years of heartbreaking disgrace until now. Mary was this little peasant girl. She didn't even want a baby yet, but she had one. And while Elizabeth's baby was declared great in the sight of God, Mary's baby gets called the Son of God. You see the temptation to compare here. Would you blame Elizabeth if she felt a little jealousy toward Mary, feeling like she deserved a Messiah baby instead? But how did Elizabeth respond? I want us to look. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. Luke 1, 39. 
At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So what would you notice? That a woman like her, been emptied of self-reliance, was free for joy. And when God breaks the chains of pride and self-reliance, we are free to rejoice in him. And see, in that day, it was customary that if you went and you visited the house of somebody else, that the, the person of lesser status was meant to first greet and bless the person of, of greater status. And so you know in this situation, Mary was the one of lesser status, Elizabeth greater status. But as Mary was doing just that, what was customary, it's almost like Elizabeth cut her off. He said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Because Elizabeth, having gone through all that she did, being emptied of her own self-reliance, now Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the child of her, in her womb jumped for joy as she honors Mary and her son. You see, jealousy and comparison stem from pride. And they can be the greatest thieves of joy in our lives. Had Elizabeth been filled with entitlement, oh, hey, Mary, she would have missed God right in front of her. The Messiah right in front of her. And if we are caught up in jealousy and comparison and pride, we can too. But God had emptied her of pride to make room for his joy. And God empties us of self-reliance to make room for his, what? Joy. And when I'm talking about joy, I'm not just talking about a joyful feeling because life is now going the way that we want. No, I'm talking about God's own joy alive and pumping through us because she was now filled with God's own spirit. It's the joy of God that explodes out of Elizabeth to the praise of the Son of God. That's the same joy that lit up the night sky before the shepherds. That's the same joy that spilled out across the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on the church and it lit across the world. Right? That's the same joy that all of those who have put your faith in Christ, you will experience forever as the praise of God just pours out of us and, and, and for all eternity. This kind of joy isn't conditioned on circumstances. This kind of joy doesn't rise and, flow and come down based on whether life is going according to plan or whether I'm in control or whether I'm getting what I want for Christmas. No, this is an everlasting joy that draws its strength from the promises of God. And as Elizabeth broadcasted, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. A New Testament scholar I read this past week said, the word blessed means possessing all that's necessary for a joyful life. Blessed, possessing all that's necessary for a joyful life. Elizabeth, what's necessary for a joyful life? Believed 
that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her, taking God at his word because we know his promises never fail. And even if in a season of disappointment or disgrace, we trust no pain is wasted, hope is not lost. Our Father hears our prayers. His Spirit is making us like Jesus and no circumstances can steal the joy that is ours in Christ for eternity. So yes, God did eventually answer Elizabeth's prayer, but... (laughs) She was given a joy greater than what any changed circumstances could produce. This is the very joy of God in her. So God empties us of self-reliance to make room for his joy. And without a doubt, each of us have circumstances going on that you probably wish were different. And some of those situations cause you tremendous pain and hurt, and a lot of confusion. And man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this is the, the nature of this broken world, broken by sin. But is joy possible even in that? You know, it reminds me of a story about George Frederick Handel. You know, Handel was the guy who wrote that famous musical, The Messiah. You know, the, the one that gobs of people go to hear this time of year, with the famous, oh! Hallelujah, right, chorus? If you were sleeping, there you go. You're welcome. <laughs> but, like, you, you got it, right? Like, like, like hallelujah. Right? It's like, that, that musical just elicits joy in us. But I was reading the story behind the composition, and apparently at the time he was writing that musical, Handel's eyesight was failing. And he was under the threat of imprisonment because he had so many outstanding debts that he could not pay. But even in the midst of that, He wrote that musical in three weeks. How? He credited it all to joy. And he is quoted as saying that as he wrote that musical, he felt as if his heart would burst with joy at what he was hearing in his mind. And when you hear that hallelujah chorus, don't you feel that? Don't you feel that too? But it was even in the dark circumstances, even before they were resolved. And he was still able to hear the praise of God welling up within him, grounded in the unchanging character and promises of who our God is. And that only that God can make a crown of beauty from ashes. Only that God can bring joy even in the midst of mourning. Only that God can make a manger the bed of a king. It can bring life from death. And each time we praise or thank him in disappointment, we're making way for his joy to rise from his spirit within us. And it's so interesting. I I was writing all of this yesterday morning. And then all of this was tested for me late morning, around noontime. Yesterday, we went to go take my son to basketball practice. We were in this little gym for an hour. And when we came back outside, my parents are in town visiting, and, and we were all coming outside. Good job, Knox. You did great. Blah, 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 right? And then we looked and saw in our van that someone had smashed out the front passenger side window. And we went and looked in and realized that stuff had been stolen from our van. And it happened to another car as well, broad daylight. And man, you want to talk about a test of joy. (laughs) 
like all I felt that morning was what? And immediately going to action, like I need to cancel things, blah, 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 get, get on, blah, 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 like trying to just solve, solve problems, whatever. But I'm going to credit my mom and my wife in this situation. Because in the midst of that interruption, which again, like I'm not saying like, thank God that our car was broken into, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in the midst of that, my mom said, hey, we need to pray. I was like, what? Like, I'm trying to like, lock our cards and all of that. Like, I don't have time to pray. She said, we need to pray. And she circled us up. And she and Shelby, even with our kids right there, began to pray. Says, Lord, I pray first off that you restore what, we, what was taken. But number two, that the person who stole this, they said, may you pester them until they give their life to you. <laughs> may... May you ride them, <laughs> go after them until their heart is changed and they ultimately hand their life over to you. And Shelby said after, she says, I, I, she's like, one thing I know, whoever took that stuff, like God is not going to let them go until he brings them to Christ. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I, in that very moment when I had every right to be angry, to be disappointed, like every reason to not have joy, what they modeled for me and what they did was they made way for God's joy, even in the midst of that. And I thank God for it. But that shows me that even in the most discouraging of situations, God's spirit is still within us. Therefore, his joy is still available to us. But oftentimes we've got to lay down and set aside some of the pride and self-reliance so that his joy can flow freely through. But that's not a joy that we conjure up. That's the joy of God himself. Amen. Emptying us of self-reliance to make room for it. So I want to invite you guys to stand up with me. And we're going to sing in a moment, Oh, come let us adore him. But I don't want you just to sing it because it's a, what we do during Christmas. I want you, if you can, just in your heart and your mind, hold out to God whatever is disappointing to you. Whatever right now you're struggling with, whatever areas of life you're trying to control, whatever things are not going the way you think they should go, hold those out to him. And I don't know what God's going to do in the midst of all of our lives. But one thing we can do is still praise him in the midst of it and thank him in the midst of it, knowing that he makes room in that for his joy. So, Lord, one thing I want to pray is I want to pray first that if anybody in here is holding on to shame in the midst of what you're going through, that your spirit would come and just wash that off of them. Deliver that from them. May those lies be replaced with your truth. If anybody in here is struggling with bitterness toward you, God, I pray that they know that that they can bring that to you, they can confess that to you, they can still come to you with that, knowing that you're a God who is always ready to meet us with grace when we come with an open heart. But in all these things, Lord, we place our lives before you, our disappointments in front of you. We do not deny that they exist. We simply deny the enemy's influence over our minds and our hearts. So may you come and may you make room for joy in this place by your spirit. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's sing.